She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I'm proud of the administration's continued efforts in fighting opioid addiction. By using existing technology and working with both the medical and technology communities to develop and launch the effort, I know the tracking system will help save lives. What's happening right now as a large group of people, they call it a caravan. Nancy Pelosi will welcome the caravans here. Uh, Donald Trump and the rest of us will stop them. People are seeing how bad it is, how pathetic it is, how bad our laws are. They made a big mistake. And now, Stacey Washington. Whoa. <laughs> Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here. We are just moving on into the week. It's Tuesday. So much going on. So much information for the show today. I mean, this is just part of what I was able to find that needs to be discussed today. And so we'll see how much we get to during the program. Welcome to the show. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Also co-chair of National Center's Project 21, National Advisory Council, and Second Amendment Foundation's 2018 Journalist of the Year. Also, Bible-thumping Christian and trigger of liberals nationwide. Here to be with you for the program. So today we're going to speak to Jacob Rich. He's a policy analyst for Reason Foundation. He's going to come on and talk to us about the federal government's attempts to solve the opioid crisis. And I want to point out to you, just as a precursor to that interview next segment, That in the past, when there was an AIDS epidemic, Congress, the White House, and Hollywood, and private citizens all banded together to try to put a stop to it. In other times in the history of this country, especially modern times, so recent times, we have had epidemics occur of drug abuse, heroin, et cetera, et cetera, um, crack cocaine, remember that? And every time that happened, we were immediately mobilized as a country, and we all got behind the effort to try to save fellow Americans. Well, This new opioid epidemic is one in which many, many Americans, especially those in the um, ruling class, don't seem interested in saving the people who are impacted because, you know, they're flyover people. They need to just, you know, stop being in those small towns and get with it and, you know, move to the major cities. They, They deserve what they're getting because they're racist. The kind of rhetoric we're seeing around this epidemic is ridiculous. And it's and it's it's telling of how the people who govern our country really think about certain segments of America. And so I want to just put that out there to think about before we actually launch into the interview. And I can't wait to speak to Jacob Rich about this. We're going to talk about the Bangladeshis who have infiltrated the migrant horde. But first, we're going to get into our daily confession. So it was my pleasure just moments ago. I just literally slid in here. Um, I was invited to a pastor's appreciation luncheon where Timmy Zell, who is a local um, celebrity, uh, you know, really wonderful guy. Um, he's been on the news here in St. Louis as a newscaster, and he's had a number of different programs um, for about 20 years. He's been in St. Louis, about the same amount of time that we've been here. And he is a Christian. He's a God-fearing man, and he's also now a pastor. He went to Concordia Seminary, and he, he says God really told him, you know, now you've, you've represented everyone else. Now it's time for you to represent me. I want you to do a program that's faith-based. I want you to do it on mainstream television. And so he does that. And I don't know what his politics are. I mean, I, I sometimes feel like I have a clue, but who knows, really? And that's not important. 
he was speaking to us today. It was a pastor's appreciation luncheon, but there were a number of media persons like myself there. And there were a number of individuals there who were, you know, not exactly pastors, but worked in some kind of ministry. And all of us were sitting there waiting to hear, you know, what, what is Timmy Zell going to speak to us about? And one of the things he spoke about was how we, first of all, he hearkened back to when um, the Israelites were told by God that, you know, Joshua is leading them now. Moses has passed away. They're in the promised land. They need to cross the river Jordan, which at this time of year, it's cresting, you know, it's overflowing its banks and they need to cross. And what God told them to do was they had to hold the Ark of the Covenant, the, the leaders, and take it into the water and stand there and that God would part the river Jordan so they could cross on dry land. And so Timmy Zell pointed out that you don't just take the one hand and hold the Ark of the Covenant. You had to have both hands on it. And the Ark of the Covenant was the representation of the presence of God in their midst. And he said that we need to put both of our hands on God, put, put our eyes on him in order for him to direct us and lead us. And that we need to also, as an additional, because it was a really great, very brief, but very, very wonderful speech that he gave today. We also need to cast all of our cares on God. And so we can be you know, angry and telling God about our problems while we're angry. We don't have to wait until we've calmed down and until the problem has now become like a canker sore that just won't go away. We can go to God right away. I'm mad about this. Father, look, look at what's happening to me here. He wants us to complain to him. He doesn't want us to pick up the phone and, and do, uh, you know, kind of a, Hey, let me tell my girlfriend about how horrible this person was to me. That's gossiping. He doesn't want us to do that. And we're, we all get go there. So this isn't condemnation. But what God really has for us is that he wants to take our burdens. He doesn't want us to get an extra backpack and strap those burdens on top of the other burdens we're carrying. He wants us to lay them all at his feet. And that if we put both of our hands and our eyes on him, that we are going to really experience the fullness of his leadership and his headship and his caring for us, which is ultimate. It's beyond anything that we can understand even as parents, we don't understand the care and affection that God has for us because it's so much greater and more perfect than that what we have for our own children. And so I just found that to be so wonderful. It was so wonderful to hear that kind of encouragement and that kind of instruction. And I, I wanted to share just that brief bit with you. I wish that it could have been something that was like that, that I could have live streamed. But, you know, sometimes it's time to live stream and other times it's a time to sit there, you know, phone in purse on silent and just listen and receive. And so that was really great. Um, so I want to give you your daily confession today. And I'm still on the kick from yesterday, which is who are you? You are family. That's Ephesians 2.19. You are strong. Psalm 68.35. You are unique. Psalm 119.13. Notice how God never says you're fat, you're ugly, you're black, you're white, you're, you're poor, you're rich. He doesn't ever say that. He never comes at us with, well, you know what? Let, let, me, let me just tell you a couple things about yourself. Not only are you not good looking, but you, you know, whatever personal comments that we would hear from maybe someone in our life that doesn't like us or maybe someone in our life that is related to us but isn't a positive person. God is never coming from that place where he's degrading us, downgrading us, pushing us down. He's always lifting us up. That's why in the, in the word, he calls himself the lifter of our heads. He, he calls himself our redeemer. He says about us that he cares for us so deeply. He knows how many hairs we have on our head. So he's always there to lift us up and he's always there to receive our burdens, to lighten our load, to be our rear guard. The glory of the Lord will be our rear guard. He's our shade and, and he provides shade to us. He says we can run to him when we're in trouble and find safety in the cover of his wings. 
He never ever says, you know, I'm your chief insulter or I'm the person that sees all of your faults. He he sees us from the perfect love that is God. Now, he's not going to tolerate any sin, but he's not a critical God who's constantly looking at what's wrong with us. So that is something that I constantly need to hear, that I need to know that God is for me. He's not against me, that he is waiting and ready to take my my cares and my concerns and to give me peace and joy and all of the, the fruits of the spirit in place of my burdens. And so one more time, you are family, Ephesians 2.19. You are strong, Psalm 68.35. You are unique, Psalm 119.13. How about that? I like it. So um, now I want to pivot over to a promise made to us by President Donald Trump. Last night was that really, really fantastic rally in Houston. And there were tens of thousands of people in the venue, a few more tens of thousands of people outside the venue watching in a big tailgate for the ages on big screens. And the president was in rare form as usual. I think this is one of his favorite things to do. He likes doing this more than tweeting, I think, which is getting in an arena with a bunch of people who really, really want to hear what he has to say, who are fired up for his brand of politics and to speak to them as if they're friends, to speak to them about what he wants to see for the country. And I know that the president has faults and a lot of people like to really focus on those. But I just think it's really cool to see someone who's in the political eye who instead of going to people and saying, I, 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 like, President Obama is back. He claims that, you know, the economy is due to him. And he referred to himself 92 times during a 38-minute speech in Nevada. Yeah, you heard me right. President, Former President Obama referred to himself 92 times during a 38-minute speech. Can you even? I mean, I, so I tried to get through a three-minute clip of his remarks, and I couldn't make it past one minute and two seconds before I had to cut it off. Meanwhile, Donald Trump made a promise, and I love this promise. Now, everyone's already come out and said it's impossible. He can't do it. But they also said he couldn't fix the economy. He couldn't bring jobs back. He couldn't, bring, uh, he couldn't put tariffs on steel and make American steel more valuable and make it uh, you know, a viable commodity again. They said a lot of things that Donald Trump couldn't do. Now, I don't think he's invincible, but I definitely think he has a track record that, me, that, that proves to me that my money's kind of on him. Let's listen to him. He's speaking about this tax cut for the middle class. It's number six. We're going to be uh, putting in a 10% tax cut for middle-income families. It's going to be put in next year. 10% tax cut. Kevin Brady is working on it. We've been working on it for a few months, a 10% brand new. And that is in addition to the big tax cuts that you've already gotten. But this one is for middle income. This is no business. Business is now good. They're coming back. The jobs are coming back. The plants and factories are coming back like never before. They're all coming back. This is for middle-income people, all middle-income people, a big tax cut. 10% will be putting it in next week. Yeah. So um, to all the analysts who say he can't do that, why don't you just say that if he did that, it would make him super popular and that doesn't make you happy. But if he did do that, wouldn't that be great? I've been talking about getting some more tax cuts ever since I've heard wind of the first tax cuts. I was actually on the air telling y'all how we needed more tax cuts than what we got. And then we got the tax cuts that we were promised. And we even got more than what we were thinking we could possibly get. Because remember, we were told that the business tax just could not be cut that low. 
And he said, if I don't see the number I'm looking for, we're not going to do anything. And people were scrambling. And even the Republicans were like, I mean, I guess we got to get behind him on this. But we know this can't be. And yes, it could be. And it is. And now he says, we're done cutting taxes for businesses. Now we're going to come back on the middle class. And if you are not a member of the middle class, but you will be, because that is the nature of America, we have a very fluid system of people when anthropologists talk about class in america they basically are using certain metrics to divide people up and it's usually income based on family size and you know they also kind of tweak those numbers based on where you live in the country because the coasts are so much more expensive than the middle but the the large thing that you have to know is anthropologists have numbers on who's working class who's middle class who's upper class and who's you know the one percent quote unquote i hate i hate that term but you know the the uber wealthy And if you're in one of those groups, let's say you're in the working class area and, you know, you're but you feel like, hey, I'm middle class. You should be rejoicing if you're in the working class area or if you're if you're in the poverty area and you hear about a tax cut for the quote unquote middle class. You ought to be rejoicing because when you get there, that means more of the money that you have worked so hard to earn and get through promotion and hard work and sacrifice and prayer and fasting and getting together with your friends and reading all of these books and watching the seminars and watching the YouTube videos and talking to friends and networking and going back and forth and praying and fasting and praying and fasting and praying and fasting all that time you spent working your way into the middle class will be rewarded by you getting to keep more of your money. If that doesn't get you excited, we need to get the paddles for you so I can shock you back to life because keeping more of your money means you can spend more money in church. Yeah, I said it. We Christians, we have a horrible record on tithing. But what unlocks the blessing? Are you having trouble at work? Are you having trouble getting that promotion? Do you feel like other people are advancing faster than you? Are you tithing? Oh, I guess, you know, we might see people get a little upset and I might get some emails, but I'm just telling you the truth. If you want to be blessed, you got to be obedient. So when we hear tax cuts coming down the road, we ought to all be pumping and, you know, yes, let's get some more of that because that is your money. You should keep it. You should decide. Then you could tithe. You could keep more of your money. Stop giving to the government. I'm just saying. We'll be back with Jacob Rich right after this. Ministry of Preborn meets abortion-minded women right where they are and reaches them with the love of Christ. We showed her love and we accept her right where she's at. If the baby's saved by what we do here and the mother's life is spared from the devastation of abortion, that definitely helps them in this life. But this is not all that there is. We want our clients to know about Jesus. I got to see his heartbeat. It just looked like a little butterfly in a bubble. The Lord gave me that baby, and He gave me that baby for a reason. The Ministry of Preborn runs and leads Christian pregnancy centers all over the country, helping abortion-minded mothers to choose life for their unborn babies. To find out more about how you can help save a baby's life, go to preborn.com or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. 
That's pound 250 and say baby. All gifts are tax deductible. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. Maybe you've heard the old line from the guy who writes the girl he's supposedly madly in love with. I will climb the highest mountain for you. I will swim swim the widest and deepest ocean to get to you. I would walk on burning coals to be with you. And then he ends his note by saying, oh, by the way, I'll be over tomorrow night if it doesn't rain. It's easy to talk about how committed and determined we are when we're not being tested. But in life, you only know what a person is really made of when you watch them operate in the midst of adversity, testing, and pressure. Listen to Job chapter 13, verses 15, and then 20 and 21. Job was going through a deep, dark valley in his life. But he said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Now verses 20 and 21, only two things do not do to me, then I will not hide from your face. Remove your hand from me and let not the dread of you terrify me. Three quick things to keep in mind based upon Job's declaration here. Number one, no matter what, keep your confidence in God Almighty. Job determined, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Secondly, seek his presence. Job didn't want God to take his hand from him. Seek his presence. Then thirdly, don't allow your circumstances to cause you to be terrified of God. Job said, and let not the dread of you terrify me. When we're suffering, we should not run from God, but run to him. Here's what I want you to remember today. Don't just talk a good game. Step up. Ask God to give you what you need to demonstrate your determination when it's needed most. Thanks, Crawford, and thank you for listening to today's Legacy Moment, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Global Ministries. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Okay, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, I got to say, I'm pretty excited about hearing an update on what's going on with the opioid crisis. We have had uh, White House staffers come on and talk to us about this, White House reporters and we've also had uh, Cassie Smettel, RNC spokesperson, come on and speak with us about the opioid epidemic and what's being done from uh, Washington, D.C. to try to combat it. I know there are a number of initiatives that are going on locally in states across the nation who are they're taking it upon themselves to deal with this issue. And so it is my pleasure to have another expert from an organization that we respect greatly, the Reason Foundation. We have Jacob Rich. He's a policy analyst there joining us right now to discuss this. Jacob, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me on, Stacey. Pleasure to be here. I'm so glad to, to uh, talk about this subject because we need routine updates on this because surprisingly, I've not seen the same kind of, uh, you know, kind of camaraderie or joining together from Hollywood and wealthy, you know, elites in on the coast. And then, of course, our media apparatus to try to talk about and combat the opioid epidemic. It seems as if it's one of those ones where they're like, well, you know, 55,000 Americans a year. You know, that's not that much. It's, it's far more than are killed by guns in this country. And you would think it would be a huge issue on the news. Yeah. But, I mean, the communities that the media and Hollywood uh, have in mind or are particularly interested with are the communities that happen to be suffering from the opioid crisis, at least at the same levels. I mean, up in San Francisco, we have uh, quite a heroin problem, but 
I'd say that mostly the East Coast and the Midwest, where the concentration of most opioid overdoses happen. And I guess if it's not quite in your backyard, it's something they might overlook. But that wasn't the case when we had the AIDS epidemic. It wasn't the case when we had uh, the crack cocaine epidemic. I mean, we're, we've had other problems like this surface before, but I guess those also those victim groups were different than the ones who are currently experiencing the opioid crisis. Yeah, they are different. And once our contrast between uh, those epidemics, which were absolutely terrible, is that the magnitude of the opioid crisis is much larger. We've never seen people die from substances or basically almost any other preventable form of death of this magnitude. Um, opioid overdoses have increased about 50% since 2010, and now we're losing about uh, 42,000 a year. I, I know that you just said 55,000. It's kind of up in the air exactly what the number is because sometimes there's issues with the CDC data that are released, reporting errors, and um, messing up in the whole recording process. But yeah, the fact that we're having so many more people die today than we've had in any other national crisis is quite overwhelming, especially that the numbers within two years, you have way more people dying from drugs, opioids only, than people who died in the whole Vietnam War on the American side. Quite, Whoa. Um, quite ridiculous. <laughs> Whoa. That, can we have that stat one more time, uh, Jacob? I, what about the Vietnam War? Because well, I did not know the Vietnam this War. Um, we had about 64,000 Americans die, right? And we remember it as one of the bloodiest tragedies in American history. Well, in 2016 and 2015, if you op- if you add those opioid overdoses together, you have much more than that. So, yeah, it only took two years to kill about as many Americans as the whole entire Vietnam War. That's from drugs. One oh. type of drug. Wow. Okay. Um, so the federal government is making some attempts to... to- to address the crisis. And I know the president's had a couple of like working groups come into the white house and uh, Ivanka Trump has spoken on this. I believe Jared Kushner's even been behind the podium and had questions from uh, news reporters about it. What are, what is the latest what's being done? Well, tomorrow president Trump is going to sign what Greg Walden calls the most substantial drug, uh, drug crisis approach ever done. It's going to be the biggest legislative response to a drug crisis in history. Uh, Greg Walden, just so you guys know, is the chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee, which was the committee in Congress that wrote and passed the majority of the bills that are going to be the omnibus opioid legislation called H.R. 6. So we have 67 bills and billions of dollars of spending coming forward to uh, hopefully squelch the crisis. And I've looked over the bills, and some of them are good or in my opinion, my professional opinion. I find some of them are very constructive, and then some of them um, not so much. Some of them might actually, in my opinion, uh, do more harm than good, but only time will tell after they pass. Okay, speaking with Jacob Rich, policy analyst for the Reason Foundation, about the opioid crisis, if you're just tuning into the show, welcome. Uh, So, Jacob, let's, let's unpack that. What do you feel is kind of like the waste of what are the waste of time items that you're seeing coming out of this? Because the push is obviously they're going to throw everything but the kitchen sink, but we don't want to waste time, resources or money. Uh, what, what are they doing that you don't agree with? Well, the whole notion that started the response to the opioid crisis is this idea called the overprescribing phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that doctors between the years of about uh, 1996 and 2010, were increasing their prescribing of opioids. And that this actually led to 
an increase in the population that is addicted to opioids. And because of this, we have a bunch of people who are addicted because of big pharma and doctors uh, prescribing in ways that are uh, not medically necessary, possibly giving someone too many pills for the type of injury that they have, and these pills get diverted either to the black market or they get diverted to friends, and then more people are addicted. And through all of that between about the late 90s and 2010, um, this idea of overprescribing causing more addiction is what people are blaming the opioid crisis on. And the legislation that goes to attack that, I have a question. I question it a lot because if you look at the drug addiction rate among people who don't use marijuana, so the illicit non-marijuana drug addiction rate or drug abuse rate, it's been consistent since about 2002. It's been very stable. And if you look at the pain reliever abuse rates, it's been about the same. We've really not seen much of a change in the abuse rates, at least reported by the substance abuse um, by SAMHSA, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration. Mm. So if those data are correct, that means the idea that overprescribing causing more addiction is false. And trying to stop doctors from prescribing opioids might not do much. So what, what is driving it? Because I think... What is uh, I'm sorry. I Please finish. Oh, yes. So I would argue what's happening is that we actually have a stable number of drugs. And because we've cut off how many pharmaceutical drugs are, some pharmaceutical-grade drugs are entering into the market through um, supply-side restrictions on doctors, you actually have a stable amount of drug addicts using drugs at the same rate, but now using more dangerous drugs because they have to substitute to the black market to grab their opioids instead of getting it from doctors. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that drug use, um, opioid use is safe or that we should be doing it at all. I'm just saying that when you substitute from the pharmaceutical-grade opioids to the black market, you have a higher probability of dying. And seeing that the increase in opioid deaths at least the skyrocketing of opioid deaths seems to happen only after states decrease their prescribing rates. It's something that we need to look into more. And much of the legislation is actually going to strengthen many of the um, many of the parameters that reduce opioid prescribing in states, mm. um, specifically the prescription drug monitoring program. Okay, so we just got one of those here in Missouri, and it was conservatives fought against it because it really it's just a huge database that they can lose control of like every every other database that they've lost control of in the past i mean it doesn't have a proven uh history of of actually lowering the people who are addicted to opioids so opioids so i I guess i have two questions first of all what is what is driving the opioid epidemic meaning the people who are addicted to these illicit you know they're obviously they're a form of painkiller but you can get other drugs on the kind of the black market illegally and use those people lace marijuana with fentanyl people, you know, so there, there's a, a lot going on here and it's much more complex than just pills from doctors. I know they're easy to get. I, I had prescriptions for them numerous times because I had extreme pain when I was going through a kind of a long-term illness and I could, I could get them with a phone call. Like I could just call in and say, I can't stand this. And she would call in a prescription for Vicodin, and, and ever stronger drugs just to get me through to my next appointment. 
I was never addicted to them, but that's because every time she would prescribe them, she'd say, don't forget that these are highly habit forming. And so I need you to stay on the schedule. And the minute you can go without them, stop taking them. And I took it pretty seriously because I thought, you know, you don't want to be addicted to drugs. But what is driving the illicit, you know, the people who are, they're being found in the car with their grandkids or their kids and they're overdosed, two people at a time, you know, kids in the back seat? What's driving that? Uh, well, um, if any researcher tells you that they know exactly what's causing addiction rates, they're probably lying because it's, mm. it's something that's still up for debate in the literature. But some things that I have been considering, I, I, I've actually been looking at drug addiction rates over the last century. And one thing, one hypothesis is that there's actually a percentage of the population that's just born that is predisposed to higher probabilities of being addicted. There's people who, when they are introduced to drugs or alcohol or any sort of vice, they have a much higher probability of being addicted to drugs. And that this rate is quite consistent throughout time. And what I would say is um, contributing to the crisis would have to be with contributing to opioid overdoses. Now, no one was really talking about opioids until a bunch of people started dying, right? The whole idea of people overdosing at their highest rates is really what brought attention to the crisis. And basically, the safety of the drug or the um, composition of the drug that this relatively stable amount of drug users is using is what's contributing to the higher rates of overdose. So there's this new drug called fentanyl. It's not like new, but it's used within the illicit community. And basically what I've seen is that every time opioid prescribing goes down and the DEA and federal authorities and local authorities start really cracking down on heroin coming over from uh, Mexico, we see a massive increase in fentanyl overdoses. And fentanyl is actually a synthetic opioid that does not require any sort of opium poppy cultivation to make. It can be made in a lab anywhere in the world. And what's happening is that there's a bunch of black market labs in China, some in Afghanistan too, but mostly in China, and they're literally just mailing this stuff over. And people are getting their fentanyl in the mail. They're not sure how potent or how um, adulterated these fentanyl might be. And they're injecting it, not exactly sure what the effect's going to be, and they end up dying at higher rates. And just to give you a little sense of how powerful fentanyl is, it's about 100 times stronger gram per gram than morphine. So just the increased use in this type of drug, um, because people have been substituting away from the pharmaceutical-grade uh, drug, is what I think is really contributing to the crisis and why we actually consider this overdose rate crisis now. Okay. So again, complex issue. We're chatting with Jacob Rich, policy analyst at Reason Foundation, about the opioid crisis and what Washington is trying to do to to kind of just just to get their maybe one finger around it, as opposed to even putting a hand on it. Um, so what what is recommended? Like if someone's listening to the show and they they've got some inroads with policymakers locally. What are the proven methods of lowering the number of people who are addicted or the number of people who actually die from overdoses? 
Well, lowering the number of people addicted has been a problem throughout the world. Uh, one thing that the Netherlands started doing, and this sounds crazy, but they actually started opening up heroin clinics, and they were giving heroin to people who were addicted to it. Now, what happened was that the black market died, and since these people were shooting up heroin in their, um, in their state-ran facilities, every time someone was about to overdose, they could save them. The overdoses went to zero. But unfortunately, we had about everyone who was a heroin addict before the program started is still an addict today. So trying to lower the amount of people who are addicted to drugs seems to be, seems to be incredibly uh, difficult. But one thing that lower uh, death rates is the access to medication-assisted treatment. And medication-assisted treatment is treatment for drugs that includes uh, consultation, moderating um, doctor advice on how to cope with addiction, and the distribution of drugs that basically prevent many of the symptoms of withdrawal that are associated with cutting yourself off of heroin, such as uh, buprenorphine and methadone. So increasing access to medication-assisted treatment is associated with massive decreases in uh, opioid overdose. And one thing France did is they actually took away, they eliminated all of the licensing requirements to prescribe buprenorphine, so any doctor was able to prescribe it. And within four years, they saw a 79% decrease in opioid overdoses. And I think that's probably the best thing that the United States could do or replicate to try to help its own crisis. Wow. So what's the likelihood of those things happening? I mean, I can see, I can, I can hear the words already. I can form them myself. The reaction to having heroin clinics is, well, that's just going to encourage more people to get addicted to heroin or, you know, having a clinic where people can shoot up lawfully and not have to go somewhere illicitly will legitimize the use of this drug and make it more palatable. Oh, no, I hear the music. Can you stay over just to answer that one question? Yes, I can stay over. Okay, uh, thank you so much. Um, that'll be my last question. I know your time is valuable. We'll be back with one last answer from Jacob Rich, policy analyst from the Reason Foundation, right after this. Stay there. Take to live an uncommon life. Here's former Super Bowl winning coach Tony Dungy with today's Uncommon Moment. As Christians, we claim to be different, but too often we look as joyless and angst-ridden as if we were unbelievers. Times can get tough. I know, I've been there. But as followers and believers in Jesus Christ, if we've asked Him into our lives, we have the joy that comes from knowing that our future is with Him in eternity. Let the joy, love, and power of the God of the universe flow through you so that others see a twinkle in your eyes, a smile in your face, and laughter in your voice. Then they'll see Him. 
and he's the one they'll be attracted to. New York Times best-selling author Tony Dungy, author of the popular Uncommon book series. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. That's CoachDungy.com. Hello, I'm James. I couldn't stop the drug use. I had made it up in my mind that I wouldn't see 21. Teen Challenge has given me a hope. This is a place of restoration and a place of true freedom. If you know an adult or teenager who's struggling with a chemical addiction, Teen Challenge can help. Call us today at 417-581-2181 or reach us online at teenchallengeusa.com. This is Urban Family Talk. Bishop E.W. Jackson. We really need an awakening in this country. We need for the Spirit of God to pour out of not just from heaven, but out of you and me into the hearts and lives of people. You know, you're going to have to answer to God one day for the things that you do. That's the message that people need to understand. Understand. Tune in to The Awakening, weekday mornings at 9 Central on Urban Family Talk. Donald Trump's America. Just two weeks remain until the midterm elections, and the president is continuing his efforts to rally the base, holding a campaign rally last night in Texas and planning another one tomorrow in Wisconsin. Before departing the White House on Marine One, the president said he's confident that Republicans will perform beyond expectations. Other than two years ago, the presidential race, I have never seen spirit like I see right now. I think the Republicans are going to do very well. All 435 House seats will be up for grabs, but in the Senate, the president said he believes momentum is with the GOP. I think the Republicans are going to do very nicely. We're doing very well with the Senate. A new poll from NBC News and The Wall Street Journal found that President Trump's approval rating has reached a new high, with 47 percent of respondents approving of the job the president is doing. At the White House, John Decker, Fox News. You can download episodes of Stacy on the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey, everybody. We are so glad to be back with Jacob Rich, policy analyst from the Reason Foundation, to answer one last question on this very serious topic of the opioid crisis that is Really, it's something that we're not, we don't have a handle on it here in this country. I want to encourage you, if you want to be a part of the calls for the last segment of this hour, you can call into the show at 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. We'll be taking calls just after this. Jacob, thank you so much. So what's the answer? <laughs> oh. oh, so what's the answer to the opioid crisis, you Well, I just... I, like if if someone's listening and they're thinking, what could we do? What are one or two things we could do? Proven things that would help. Nothing's going to completely wipe it out or eradicate it, but we could definitely be doing better here. What would those one or two things be? I have, I have two things. Actually, it's exactly two things that I, there's basically two things that I think would definitely do something. And then there's some other ideas that were like, hmm, we tried them and hopefully it works. But the two things that definitely would work would be removing uh, licensing for buprenorphine uh, prescribing. So I will have to give some credit to Congress. They noticed that there was a high demand for opioid treatment, and it was so high that we actually did not have the resources um, to meet it. Because currently, 
how buprenorphine prescribing works is that a doctor can a doctor has to apply to get a license, and then after he successfully treats um, patients with his license, he can increase his cap to a hundred patients. And currently, we only have two thousand, um, oh, just above two thousand, buprenorphine licenses to treat a hundred patients, um, and that means there's about two hundred thousand. Um, people who can be treated. But if you look at the government's data for how many people are addicted to pain relievers alone, there's about 2 million. So Congress did expand the cap from 100 to 275. So these doctors will be able to see more patients. Unfortunately, I don't think that's quite enough because even if we expand the um, cap for how many patients these doctors can see, that's only going to be about 700,000 people that will legally be able to be prescribed um, buprenorphine for medically assisted treatment. And given that, again, only two, about 2 million people are using pain relievers alone, that's probably not sufficient. But we are moving in the correct direction there. So removing licensing requirements for doctors to prescribe buprenorphine is the first thing that I think we should do. The second thing we should do, I think that the Surgeon General should give a standing order to allow pharmacies to distribute uh, naloxone. Naloxone is the drug that basically reverses an opioid overdose. So if someone has naloxone on them, they encounter someone who is overdosing, it's actually incredibly easy to revive them. All you do is take the naloxone, you stick it in their nose, and the uh, overdose stops. It actually blocks the opioid receptors, and they come right to. It's an amazing drug, and it's actually not dangerous. If you uh, gave anyone a hit of naloxone, even if they weren't overdosing, it wouldn't be dangerous for them to consume it. So the fact that naloxone is not addictive, it's not dangerous to distribute, and has the potential to save lives, and is already saving hundreds of thousands of lives um, in EMTs, which should be available over the counter. And the Surgeon General giving a standing order to allow pharmacies to distribute it um, at the national level would allow it to basically be over the counter. And many states have already done this and seen great success. So I, I think those are the two things that we should do. Wow. Well, sounds like the EpiPen of opioid addiction. Um, and That's I'm, exactly what it is. We need that. We need that. So I'm, I'm, there it is, listeners. He just gave you the two things that we could be asking our senators about, asking our congressmen about, and talking about at our local municipal meetings and um, these forums that we have. Because a lot of communities have forums on opioid addiction and how to treat it and what to do. And I really, truly believe we could, we could make some inroads here if we, just, if we just had a couple things. So now you do. No excuses. Thank you, Jacob, for holding over, uh, over the break and for your time today and for your expert analysis. I learned so much. Um, thank you for joining the program. I hope to talk to you again soon. It's a pleasure being here, Stacey. Have a good day. You too. And that was Jacob Rich, policy analyst at the Reason Foundation. They do such good work there, and he was clearly an expert here. Uh, we need more of his kind of analysis, but then we need that second portion, which is you take what you've learned and you implement it. And to have the EpiPen of opioid addiction, to have that available, um, I don't know any parents who have kids who are allergic to foods who don't keep EpiPens almost everywhere in the glove box of the car, in your purse, in their backpack, at school with a nurse. And 
this is the kind of thing that if we want to see people, it, it's very hard to break an opioid addiction. We've got to have a way to stop the overdose, overdoses so we can at least stem the tide. And then hopefully our medicine will catch up with what's going on and there will be better treatment options, better medications to help people actually step down from the drug and successfully beat the addiction. Obviously, the chain breaker, the number one chain breaker, way maker, releaser, setting, setting the captives free, it's Jesus Christ. But in addition to praying and fasting and trying to break addictions and, and relying on God, we have to use what's available to us in this natural world, which means medications like the one that he described. Great interview. Uh, let's go to the phones. We have callers. Yes. Okay. Steve in Illinois. Thank you so much for calling the show today. What's your comment? Hi, Stacey. Hi. Um, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to kind of backtrack a little bit on what you were talking about earlier in the show about mm-hmm. Obama compla- or taking credit. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's quite a few. There's quite. There's quite a few factors there that people that that people don't understand is if if Obama was to have claimed this boom as a result of his policies, how come all these companies? You, I, I think you remember, they the Obama administration worked out a deal with the European Union and the United Nations to go after companies from the U.S. that was putting their money in foreign banks yeah. because they didn't want to invest it here. Mm-hmm. Um, and people don't understand, too, how unemployment I – mean, I shouldn't say people don't. A lot of people don't understand because it's not promoted, but unemployment is calculated on the number of new applications put in. And when Obama took office, people were drawing unemployment up to two years. And after he took office, he started eliminating that and knocked it down to like down to a year or nine months or whatever it was. So all them people that had been drawing unemployment no longer could draw it again. And the unemployment started coming down because they didn't count uh, as the uh, new applications no more. Yeah, you're talking well, about the the U six number. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, he 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 did a lot of sleight of hand, just like he called himself. He was like, "Don't call me that," but he loved it when the media called him the deporter in chief. It was another area where he just fudged the numbers. He would count deportations as individuals who were turned around at the border when a true deportation is when someone's actually in the country. So he really didn't deport very many people, but he got the nickname deporter in chief, which everybody knew was tongue in cheek because he was fudging those numbers too. That's why I can't stand listening to him. I, I'm, I'm, I just, I'm so over him. Let's go to Larry. Hey, Larry, thanks so much for calling the show today. Um, yeah, I just had a comment on the, uh, conversation about the opioid addiction. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, I, I had an accident in 95, and I've been on uh, painkillers since then uh, for serious nerve damage. My leg was almost amputated. but um, And over the years, um, you know, my doctor has worked very closely with me, too, and, and I was eventually on, um, um, you know, high doses of codeine, and eventually that didn't work, and I was on the, um, the uh, patch, the, um, oh, the medication, a very strong one. Um, either way, um, one thing I, I, I hear a lot of people talk about addiction, but, you know, all the years I've been on these medications, your body becomes addicted regardless, even if you follow your doctor's instructions to the T. 
the problem is, is you have people that are either getting these medications that weren't prescribed to them and abusing them, or they are prescribed and they're not following their doctor's instructions. Mm-hmm. Either way, your body becomes acclimated. And if you play around with that in any way, you get yourself in trouble. And then these people that are, are abusing these medications, now they go different avenues trying to accommodate their body's need for this extra dose that they shouldn't have been taking in the first place. I followed my doctor's instructions to the T, and I've never had any problems, even on the most potent doses. The other medications have to be prescribed in micrograms instead of milligrams because they're so powerful. But I do believe that doctors need to spend much, much more time explaining to their patients the risks and what can happen if they don't follow the instructions and also have a close relationship as far as that patient-doctor relationship so that if there is problems or if the patient does want to reduce their intake of the meds so that even though their body has become acclimated to that medication, that they can, you know, go the right avenues to adjust so that they don't have all those withdrawal symptoms. Because I've experienced that myself. I don't have pain one day. I decide not to take as much of the medication. And, boy, my body's just really to having that medication. Mm. Well, thank you so much for that information. And I I agree with you. Um, We need, you know, I wouldn't say oversight. I just think doctors have to be reminded to keep those warnings up and and the follow-ons from the nurses with patients to keep the information flowing back and forth. It's a tough subject. Uh, Kevin in Kansas, thank you so much for calling the show today. Uh, Yes, I uh, have a friend that at work that I'm training to take my place for when I retire, and he is not... uh, doing so well. He had opioid addiction and heroin and just told me all about it and crazy. He was in uh, work release and when he first started working, he was doing really good. And then when he got out, he, within the 30 days, he just turned crazy. And uh, he came to work, just loaded, cranked out on something. And you know, it brought me to the place that I'm crying before the Lord. His only hope, and I told him this yesterday when he came in, because he's too tired to stay there at work, just not sleeping. He said he'd been up for two days. And, you know, I loaned him some money to help him out. I, you know, gave him some money. said, don't worry about paying me back. I gave him some money for gas, and all I had is a $100 bill, and as I bring them my change back, I'll give you the 20 And he went out and gambled it. He didn't even come back to work that night, you know. And he, he sent me a text and said, I'm on my way back and I'll bring you money and all that stuff. And then when he got to work last night, he said, well, I lied to you. I That's when he told me he gambled it away. Wow. Well, thank you for calling and sharing that. Um, that, that was, that's just a peek into what's happening with people who are addicted. Um, those kind of behaviors are pretty typical of, of addicts that they, you know, misuse the, the things that they're given by friends and family members who care for them. Um, thank you so much, Kevin. Let's go to Karen in Texas. Karen, thanks for calling the show today. 
Hi, Stacy. I Hi. just want to tell you, first of all, I just absolutely love your program. Oh, and I, uh, you are doing an amazing job. I, uh, I appreciate you so much. And I, I actually was one of those people that called in and donated during your time slot. So oh, thank you, you so to- much. No? Thank you for helping me reach my goal. Because, you know, I was, so, I was so concerned. I'm like, I'm coming after, you know, Focal Point, which is a big, huge show, one of the longest-running shows on AFR. Yes. And Brian Fisher is a icon unto himself here at AFR. And here I am coming in, hadn't even been on the air for 90 days on AFR, and it's share And I was thinking, I actually said, I was like, Lord, the only way this gets done is if you help me because I can't raise these kind of money yeah. on my own. And he just showed out. I mean, it, people like you gave during my hour, and I was so grateful. I still am because I, did, I just wanted to do a good job for my bosses there. I want, I want Will Addison and um, Jim Stanley to be happy with the decision that they've made and that the you're, show would be a blessing. You're doing great. Stacy, every you. time I hear your voice, I just the sun just shines in my home. Oh. I don't know, you just are a ray of sunshine in my life. So I appreciate you so much. And I, I did want to address the opioid crisis because I am, I mean, I could be all over the map. I could talk to you for an hour about this. But um, mm. Okay, we only have so about a minute things. left, so you'll have to be busy. I know, I know, and that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to make it real concise. I am a person, I'm 60 years old, I have severe arthritis, and I do depend upon... Uh, pain medication and it's just getting increasingly harder for those of us who actually need to take it and need it um, like the gentleman was saying before you just if you do it right and and I'm under a pain management doctor but you know there's doctors leaving all the requirements I think the media has just overplayed this so much we need to define what is really you know the opioid crisis, what is it? It's not the prescribing medication. And I'm just going to wrap it up real quickly, but there are two things that if they would really look into this is, um, first of all, Medicaid. You know, years ago they just started prescribing. People didn't have money, so we just send them off in the hospitals with all these, you know, these pills, and so they don't come back and they don't break the system. And then, you mm-hmm. know, the doc in the boxes just line up and, you know, they, they open a pharmacy right next door to the hospital. They you have about 20 seconds. What's, okay. what's the second the part? Drug, the the uh, prison reform, prison reform, they're letting the drug lords out, putting the drugs on the street, mm. and they, they then they get people addicted to heroin. Oh, thank you, Karen. Thank you so much for calling the show today. Hey, if you're leaving us, adios from the heartland, citizens. If you're staying with us, we have more news and information for you right after onenewsnow.com at this break. God bless. <laughs> 